Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This is Carpe Consensus. Join hosts Ben Schiller, Danny Nelson, and Cam Thompson as they seize the world of crypto. All right, welcome to Carpe Consensus. This is a podcast from the Coindesk Podcast Network, and I am Ben Schiller, the features editor here at Coindesk. And joining me today is the great, inimitable Danny Nelson. How are you, Danny? How am I? I am well. What's my title this week? I don't know. You make it up and we'll go along with it. And also joining Danny is Cam Thompson. She is definitely a Web3 reporter, I think. Is that right? Yes, yes, definitely. My title stays consistent. How is your week going then, Cam? Uh, you know, it's going well. I literally sprinted here from the courthouse down in Fidei because I was at the Metaburkin trial, which I'll get into a little bit more details on that later. So just got to the office literally five minutes before we started recording. So, you know, a little flustered, but ready to go. High energy. I'm excited for today. So for those who don't know, FIDAR is the financial district of New York City. So uh, that's where it is. Anyway, uh, let's get to a little explanation of the show. So Danny, uh, what is this show all about? This show is where we here at Coindesk dive into the big themes that we're previewing for the Consensus Festival in Austin, Texas in April. It's going to be the big moment for everyone in crypto to come together and talk about the most important themes, trends, and topics. We are going to go inside the desk, which is our news roundup segment. I'm going to get to some pretty good stories there. And we're going to talk to Coindesk reporter Kamamal Shumba, who's out with a big story out of the UK, uh, looking at the regulatory regime there, which is a very volatile situation. And then Cam is going to do Cam's Corner, which is her lighthearted roundup. And she's going to get into the uh, Meta Birkin situation, which is a fascinating story. So uh, let's get to it. Let's go inside the desk and talk about some of the big stories we're thinking about and how we're thinking about them. Ben, what's on your mind in the desk this week? I'm inside the desk, so my mind is very foggy. Uh, No, um, I want to pick up on an opinion piece that we published uh, last week, and it's entitled, Why Venture Capitalists Won't Be Held Accountable for Investing in FTX. So, you know, obviously every part of the FTX story is, uh, as we say in the UK, dodgy, you know, from the regulatory action that wasn't uh, from 
the very conspicuous actions of SBF and other executives there, but less, you know, less remarked upon is the role of uh, venture capitalists who put in billions and billions and billions of dollars into FTX, uh, apparently without doing any of the required due diligence or what you would expect of investors uh, when, when committing that sort of capital to a project like FTX. And there was news coming out last week to say that the SEC, which is the main financial regulator in the United States, uh, was considering a new rule that would place more requirements, more reporting requirements on venture capitalists to account for their decisions. Uh, and it, wouldn't, it would no longer, under this rule, be admissible for them to say, we messed up or we were uh, just made a mistake. They would actually have to account more for their actions. And I thought that was very interesting, uh, first of all, because it kind of brings to light the role of venture capitalists which, as I say, uh, is unremarked upon or underremarked upon. And, and secondly, the SEC seems to be really trying to create something that is a disincentive for bad investments at the height of the bull run that we saw um, last year. So uh, what do you think about that, Danny? Yeah, I mean, it, I don't know if we need to have a rule that bans private investors from doing stupid things with their money. Certainly, they should be punished if they're investing in things that they know to be fraudulent. It's just a fund that didn't do its due diligence. I don't know if we should be holding them accountable in any way other than just the public discourse and in other investors maybe not giving them their money. Like, what, what is a fund to do? The way that the system works and sometimes doesn't work is people make bets and some of those bets are bad. As long as they're not making bad bets knowing that they're bad, then I don't know how we hold them accountable. I mean, I have to agree with Danny on this one. I think, Danny, what you said specifically about not doing their due diligence, I think that's what comes down to it, right? I mean, if these firms had actually taken the time to look through a balance sheet from Alameda slash FTX, this really strange, nebulous situation that was going on, I think that there would have been more understanding. Granted, they had that information and then they made investments off of that. That is where I believe people should be punished. Yeah. I mean, it's just worth pointing out uh, how uh, disastrous some of this so-called due diligence was. Oh, for sure. Uh, I mean, there was one uh, little tidbit in the story to say that Temasek Holdings had claimed to have done eight months, eight months of due diligence without identifying a single red flag in uh, FTX's operations, which is kind of, frankly, incredible, really. I mean, if, if it's true. Because, you know, when, when we did a, an analysis of our own uh, using auditing and accounting experts, I mean, any old idiot, frankly, could have seen multiple red flags, you know, within minutes of, of looking at these accounts. So you really wonder what these companies were doing and what these people were doing. And, and, and maybe they were just uh, off on a beach somewhere and, and not doing their job. I imagine that during that eight-month period, the Temasek guys just saw that they had the report from an audit in their inbox. And they just didn't bother to open it. So just to get to the substantial point here, I mean, you don't see any role for regulators in, in this situation that you think that capitalism uh, will be self-regulating, that VCs presumably will not attract the same capital they did in the previous bull run and they will be punished in the next bull run. And you think that's sufficient sanction in this case? I mean, the, the sufficient sanction is the fact that Sequoia's lost $250 million and is extremely embarrassed. That's a huge issue for them. And they will be punished by their investors who may not give them money. And they will be held accountable by those investors who thought, oh, well, 
you just gave up $250 million and now that's vaporized? That money's not coming back. It's not, not a huge amount of money to a Sequoia, but they've lost their money because they didn't do their work. And the solution for the next time is that do the homework. They're just going to say, well, you know, venture capitalism's risky and uh, only one in 10 bets pays off. And they've got these other bets over here that are wildly successful. And we have to write this down. And that's a sort of normal part of uh, Silicon Valley, you know, in investing. Whereas what's going on here is actually not really a kind of a company that went wrong and, and the kind of business model didn't add up. It was actually a case of fraud and a case of uh, investors sleeping on the watch and just basically doing nothing to safeguard the investment of, of their investors. And I think this, it's something more troubling than just capitalism at work here. Well, I think it's interesting, the fact, Ben, that you said these workings of capitalism. I mean, in the case that no one had ever done their due diligence, it's very possible that FTX would still be thriving. People would still be investing in crypto. Yes, I understand that it is a bear market and there are a lot of conditions that are preventing people on the outside. But in that sense, it doesn't seem that FTX would have stopped had no one questioned what was really going on with the funds. So what you're saying really is that they made the investment because they thought the valuation of FTX would continue going up uh, and it was not actually yes. nothing to do with the fundamentals of the business. Yes, I'm saying that it wasn't necessarily a bad bet and this sort of one in 10, oh, there's a 10% chance that may, like my investment will do well. I mean, FTX was doing well for so long. I'm going to just have to come down on the side of the invisible hand here, you guys. Like, the, there's the private markets and there's the public markets. In the public markets, there are companies that are highly regulated by the SEC that have to disclose everything, everywhere, all the time, that really have uh, high levels of compliance to meet, and that's in order to protect the everyday investor. The way that companies grow before they get to the public markets is by attracting capital and by also not having to deal with those public levels of oversight. And the investors who invest in them through SEC rules that are extremely outdated and imprecise and also favor the rich. So there are a lot of issues there. But those investors are basically understood to have a higher risk tolerance and are able to take more risks. And because of that, they put their money in riskier places. And I don't know how we hold them at fault here for doing anything other than losing their own money. They didn't know that FTX was a fraud, just like we didn't know that FTX was a fraud. Surely someone should have done more homework. But the, f the fact of the matter is they didn't do their homework and they lost their money. Yeah. Join Coindesk's Consensus 2023, where Web3 meets IRL, happening April 26th through 28th in Austin, Texas. Consensus is the industry's only event bringing together all sides of crypto, Web3, and the metaverse. Immerse yourself in all that blockchain technology has to offer creators, builders, founders, entrepreneurs, and more. Use code CARPE to get 15% off your pass. Visit coindesk.com slash consensus or check the link in the show notes. Okay, we're going to get into a segment now with a Coindesk reporter called Chamomile Shumba. She's based in London, and she's going to give us an update on the situation there with the FCA. That's the Financial Conduct Authority, uh, the equivalent in the UK of the SEC. And it's all about the registration process for crypto companies in the UK and some of the trials and tribulations they've been having with that process and hopefully getting to the end of uh, and getting more clarity on uh, 
what we can see uh, for those companies going forward. So thanks for joining the show, Kamal. Thanks for having me. Great. So tell us about this story. Just give us the outline. Yeah, so I guess the story really is about the struggles that the crypto company have been through when it comes to trying to register with the UK's financial regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority, because that is the only way to serve UK clients in this country if you're a crypto company is by registering with them because they have powers to basically oversee the sector at the moment. So if you're not registered with the FCA, you then have to go abroad or shut down. So a lot of crypto companies try to apply with the FCA. And not many got through. So most of them have had to leave, basically. And a lot of them have complained. So how much of an incentive was this for companies to leave the country then? I mean, uh, have you spoken to lots of companies that have basically gone offshore because of this? Yeah, so in my story, I spoke to over 16 sort of people, firms, lawyers, as well as those who work with crypto companies, consultants. They were just kind of echoing that the process had been quite rigorous, more tough than what a lot of companies expected, that there were long waiting times. There's maybe a staff shortage at the FCA because a lot of companies faced sort of being dealt with by multiple FCA people when it came to the applications. And they felt like the process took as long as it did because the FCA weren't well equipped for them. And also that the attitude of the FCA wasn't really encouraging. They weren't getting much feedback. They just essentially felt like they didn't have much to work with. Um, and even MPs like we're going to hear today were saying that that approach isn't necessarily great for a country, which is saying it wants to be a crypto hub because that is the UK's plan. But yet as a result of that, companies are leaving and they're not being able to get through the doors. Right. So the UK wants to be a crypto hub, but uh, does its financial regulator you know, share that value? I mean, are, are the politicians and the regulators aligned on that uh, goal? Yeah, that's a good question. So the UK did say in April it wants to be a crypto hub, and it's kind of repeated it again and again. Whereas the SCA in April said, okay, so it's been on the more critical side before then, and now that the UK said it wants to be a crypto hub, it's going to try and maybe be a bit more balanced, which is something that they, they literally said themselves. So since then, they've been engaging with the industry. They have done like crypto sprints and the industry have felt kind of like the FCA is listening and hearing their thoughts. And, you know, the UK has just launched a consultation as well and it'll continue to engage the FCA. So I think there is a, a genuine effort from the regulator to sort of try and get on board as much as it can with the UK government. But it's, you know, I think it, it did face real difficulties, um, like staffing shortages at the start. And it has said that and it has tried to recruit since. And of course, it had to get used to a new sector, which is crypto, that a lot of people hadn't really faced before. So, Camomile, I have a question. Where are some of these companies going to register and have the right approval in order to operate? You know, what other countries? And, you know, with the UK's plans to eventually become a crypto hub, how do you think the UK needs to act in order to bring back some of these firms that have had to go overseas in order to operate? Um, some companies are going to like overseas territories, British overseas territories that may have a bit of a lighter touch approach, or at least you know they may be able to get there as opposed to here. Yeah, just anywhere that's easier and that seems more crypto friendly in their eyes. Right. I was going to ask about that. I mean, you know, back in April when uh, the UK wanted to be a crypto hub, you know, the market was up and everyone was very bullish about. The future and general sentiment is opposite that now. Has that changed how the FCA is operating? Or 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've been in some sort of discussions between the crypto community and lawmakers and kind of watching them have that discussion after FTX and everything happened. It kind of went, the tone was kind of like, well, it's now your job to sort of convince regulators that this is important. It's all on you. Whereas before, I think the market was kind of speaking for itself. People were seeing, you know, Bitcoin go up and up and up. And all these retail people jumping in and even like you were seeing banks and all these big names, celebrities, everybody was endorsing crypto, whereas now no one's really doing it in the same way. So it's really on like the crypto community to sort of hold the mantle. So I have another question. And I asked the same question to Mark Hochstein, our executive editor for Consensus, when he came on to talk about U.S. policy and crypto a couple weeks ago. After FTX, it seems there's sort of two narratives, right? There's financial fraud and crypto that has some bad actors or potentially is, you know, like the technology itself is susceptible to people committing crimes, right? So like separating that is a big part of what people have been trying to understand, right? So I'm curious in the UK what some of those conversations are like. Are a lot of regulators able to kind of separate that narrative and understand financial fraud versus digital currency and kind of take those two things separately? I think the issue with that is some of these companies that are like trying to register with the FCA are criminal companies who probably are potentially doing fraud, who the FCA have then had to report to investigators and have said that investigation is going on at the moment. So um, sometimes they can't separate the two, but I feel like the government definitely has said that it recognizes there's still innovation in the sector. And even the FCA have also said that there's still innovation in the sector. So they definitely do see that not everyone is bad and they want to encourage the innovation seems to be the narrative and sort of separate the bad actors from the good. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Kamamal. Uh, it was Kamamal Shumpa. Uh, and so following this interview with, with Kamamal, we're going to be uh, uh, listening to a couple of interviews that Kamamal did with uh, some lawyers and other sources for that story. So stay tuned for that. When I first started looking into this story in April of 2022, the crypto industry was in quite a different place than it is today. Now it's almost impossible to speak about regulation without FTX popping into the conversation. But looking ahead, I think it's very likely, and particularly if you look in in the global context post FTX, that there's gonna need to be a much more robust and widespread regulatory regime that protects both consumers and, and the wider UK financial system. That's James Elaine, a legal director at Kingsley Napley, who previously worked at the FCA and helped set up the registration regime during his time there. I also spoke to Jill Lorimer, partner at Kingsley Napley, who has both advised and worked with a number of crypto firms when it comes to the FCA. Um, do you mind if I just jump in? Yeah, let's go for it. Okay, cool. So I guess the first question that I have for you guys is, why was the UK's crypto registration set up? I think the key point here is that these products are growing exponentially in popularity and that they can be volatile and they can, when they become so popular, pose issues of systemic risk as well. So given that, it's it's really been essential that there's been some form of regulatory oversight to their use. So crypto is getting more popular and crypto is volatile. It's different. And these differences to traditional finance could pose risks. Oversight seems to make sense, right? But so far, the FCA's interventions have faced criticism. Well, I think the registration process is and has been a very rigorous process. 
and many firms have not been successful and have had their applications refused or had to withdraw their applications. In some cases, that will have been the, the right outcome. But in some cases, these firms will have had really good innovative products, but the firm has fallen short in some way in their application, perhaps on relatively minor grounds. And that will have led to the closure of those firms, potentially the loss of jobs and reduced consumer choice. So in respect of those firms, that's a loss to the UK market and the UK economy. Lorimer's thoughts are backed up by numbers. Data from the SCA's website shows just 14% of firms looking to win regulatory approval in the country passed muster. The financial watchdog said that only 41 of the 300 crypto companies applying for registration managed to win full approval since it opened its registration regime two years ago. Despite this, it seems that some crypto firms are choosing to forge on unregistered and unapproved. And the FCA has taken notice. The regulator has flagged over 50 crypto companies as of the end of January, based in the UK as being unregistered and serving clients in the country. This is something Elaine thinks the FCA should do more to combat. I think the thing that surprises me probably most, though, about this is that, you know, I think it's fairly clear to most people that there are probably unregistered firms who are continuing to operate in the UK. And I'm quite surprised to see that the relative lack of action by the regulator against those firms, you know, it has powers under the regulations to, for example, apply for court injunctions, to start criminal prosecutions. And I'm certainly not aware of those powers having been used by the regulator at this point. Problems aside, there's still hope for crypto firms looking to operate in the UK. At an industry stroke firm level, you know, it's always going to be really important to ensure that firms who are seeking to come into the UK scope of UK regulation or indeed who are already in, you know, are constantly improving their knowledge and understanding of regulatory requirements, you know, seeking appropriate training and constantly upskilling to ensure that their applications are as robust as possible, but also that they're in a good place to to deal with ongoing regulatory requirements and looking further ahead, the likely incoming wave of regulation that's going to be in place over the next few years, you know, and seeking, you know, strong legal and compliance advice can really help firms in this sector ensure that the quality of of their applications and work product is effective and will satisfy the regulator. We spent some time discussing what firms can do to improve, but can the FCA do better? At an FCA level, there's clearly going to be a a lot of work for them to do to build a framework that both provides an effective level of protection for for market participants and consumers, but which does not hamper innovation and new technologies. And that's going to be a real challenge balancing those two things. You know, it it looks like the FS bill is going to give the FCA significant powers to do this. And the recent failure of FTX over in the States, you know, only serves to show how important a strong regime is going to be. So there's going to be a lot of work for the FCA to do on this, and it's going to really need to ensure that it works closely with its key stakeholders, both in government, overseas, and in the wider industry to maximise its chances of getting things right. I would echo the need for greater collaboration between the FCA and industry. The introduction of the registration regime has been a challenging process for both firms and the regulator. So it's now time to focus on working together on the development of the next stage of regulation. Close collaboration and information sharing with regulators and other jurisdictions, I think, will be key to the development of international standards and the adoption of best practice. Some listeners will remember the UK Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, saying that he wanted to make the UK, quote, a global hub for crypto asset technology. 
when he was the country's finance minister way back in April. Member of Parliament Dr Lisa Cameron has been working towards that vision as chairwoman of the All Parliamentary Group for Crypto and Digital Assets, which was formed in December 2021. And yeah, it is an interesting dilemma with um, the UK saying it wants to be a crypto hub, but then at the same time, regulators do have to be mindful of what's going on in the space currently. So moving forward, how does the UK sort of navigate this goal, plus the fact regulators also have to be mindful of, you know, the consequences of these of these companies? But I do think that because of what's happened in the industry over the past few months, we're all aware of the need to be very cautious as well. And um, therefore, having robust underlying principles and working together is going to be really key in in developing um, regulation that's workable, that helps business, but that also protects consumers. And that's really where we're at. Case it is, millions of people in the UK are involved in this industry. They need us to act and they need us to act in, in a very measured way so that they can have the protections they need and industry can also thrive. And it's exactly this point that Cameron returned to several times in the interview. She recognises that the crypto industry is growing and the desire is there for UK firms to set up shop. But rather than releasing the floodgates, Cameron stresses the need for measured, careful actions when it comes to creating a framework for regulation, even if it means a slower pace. Well, yeah, and that's what makes this work even more vital just now, because the sector thriving, as you say, is it, there's huge growth and potential. We need to harness that, but we need to do it in a way that is measured and that is appropriate um, for the UK and is robust and that people can have confidence in both consumers and industry and investors. So, you know, I think it's not an either or. I think we just have to find the correct balance there. Um, And that means that we're probably not in the UK going to be the first case actors for regulation, as you know, because um, EU has moved ahead, etc. But I don't think that's necessarily a disadvantage because, as I say, we want to make it bespoke and we want to pick up the best practice internationally from many jurisdictions and look at what fits for the UK to ensure that we can be at the helm in terms of fintech development and in terms of digital finance for the future. Industry advocates all seem to be singing the same tune when it comes to what the UK's approach to the crypto sector should be. And that's a collaborative one. I think where things could be improved is certainly around about engagement and communication and having clarity for industry. And people want to know how to improve um, what they're doing, how to meet the standards that are required. They need clarity around about these issues. And I understand legislators play a huge role in that as well. So we all have to work together, I think, on a sort of collaboration to make this process streamlined so that we can have those companies who are engaging in evidence-based practice, who want to comply, who are the good actors to come and to be industrious and innovative in the UK and, and, you know, so that we can achieve that vision that the Prime Minister has of the UK becoming a hub of cryptocurrency. But consumer protection, I feel, has to be at the core of that vision. And that's, you know, the way we're working with the FC and also with industry itself. As for solutions to crypto regulation in the UK... Cameron's Cryptocurrency and Digital Assets Group has an upcoming inquiry report that highlights the crypto industry's needs and the necessary next steps. 
Well, I'm really pleased that we're going to have the outcome of our inquiry report for the all-party parliamentary group for cryptocurrency and digital assets reporting within the next two months. And there's going to be recommendations from that to government as to, you know, the steps that need to be taken to um, strengthen the system that's operating to make sure that we engage industry, to make sure that we have identified the issues that are presenting within the sector that government have those highlighted to the minister and that also there are solutions and um, progress being made to address them. Because I think, you know, it's only in working collaboratively and addressing the presenting problems and overcoming challenges that we can harness the real potential moving forward. So the UK's FCA and the crypto industry both have some work to do before the country can achieve its goal to become a crypto hub. Lawmakers like Cameron and industry advocates want a robust regulatory crypto regime and know it's important that the FCA does not accept just anyone through its doors. But the issue they have raised is that some companies that do have a lot to offer the country are not able to register with the regulator. The FCA is not the only one to blame here. Crypto companies need to make sure they are filling the applications correctly to adhere to the anti-money laundering standards the FCA has. As for the companies operating in the UK who are ignoring the FCA entirely or conducting criminal activity, I think it's fair to say it seems like the regulators only just beginning to tackle those firms. We may see more action as the FCA gets more powers to regulate the sector from the Financial Services and Markets Bill, which is still being debated. Plus, there are ongoing criminal investigations of some crypto companies that tried to register with it, as the FCA mentioned in a letter to the Treasury Select Committee recently. The country says it wants to be a crypto hub, but it looks like the UK is about to have a whole lot more regulation, making things more complicated for the industry in the short term. But who knows? Over time, it could lead to a healthier sector. The bills under debate are the Financial Services and Markets Bill, which I mentioned already, That is the country's Brexit bill designed to give regulators like the FCA more powers over the financial sector. It's set to be finalised by April. Plus, a draft of the Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Bill is being discussed, which will help law enforcement agencies freeze, seize and recover crypto use for criminal activities. Once regulators have all the necessary powers to oversee crypto, the UK is going to usher in more legislation. So the government's financial arm, the Treasury, has recently introduced a consultation where it asks crypto industry stakeholders for their thoughts on what legislation for the sector should look like. So as we have discussed today, the path to becoming fully registered in the UK can be bumpy and windy. If you're one of the 41 UK firms that was approved, congratulations! If you were rejected, keep your chin up, try again if you can because nothing good comes easy. All right, Cam's Corner. Cam's Corner. Thank you. I wasn't going to do that, so I needed someone else to. Appreciate it, Ben. This corner, we're going to be talking about a very interesting trial that is going on right now. It actually... um, Well, actually, at the time that this is out, that the verdict will be out, but we don't know the verdict yet. Anyways, very interesting ongoing trial in the NFT space. Hermes, the creator of the iconic Birkin bag, is suing Mason Rothschild, who is the artist behind the Meta Birkin NFT collection. 
So essentially what this is, it was an NFT collection that showcased Birkin bags, very similar to Birkin bags. Some people are calling it identical copy of these designs, which then can be worn in the metaverse. Now, there are a lot of components here, but essentially Hermes is suing Rothschild because of trademark infringement. So Cam, what is the main argument at stake here in the trial? A lot of what this case has been relying upon is the Rogers test. And this is a very interesting test that dates back to the 80s, where essentially it's trying to separate artistic freedom from copyright infringement using the First Amendment. So this has been talked about a lot in the case on both sides. And it's very interesting as it's one of the first real NFT cases brought to trial dealing with digital assets and IP that surround them. So this isn't just about the Birkin. I mean, first of all, the Birkin is no ordinary bag, right? It's like a $10,000 of pop or something. No ordinary bag. It is very expensive. Some people call it an investment because it raises in value over time. So it appreciates designer bag fanatics. Most, most of them dream of or already own a Birkin bag. And the supply is also very low. It takes Hermes a long time to produce one of these bags. This isn't just about the Birkin bag. This is about all kinds of real world assets that have found digital copies in the metaverse world, right? And the the artists have come along and kind of monkeyed around with the image. And so it's relevant to lots of things. (laughs) Monkeyed around. I like that. Given that there are so many monkeys in NFT (laughs) artwork. But anyways, anyways, it's very interesting because this case really does set a precedent for how artists and digital creators are going to carry forward utilizing bits and pieces of brand's IP. And yes, the Birkin name is trademarked. The actual design for the Birkin bag is trademarked. So where does one draw the line when another artist comes around and utilizes that content, also utilizing the name, branding it to be another collection? And there are a lot of very interesting testimonies, very interesting takes from this case. And so much to unpack in terms of how us as a Web3 community will proceed in creating and purchasing these different types of assets. So Cam, looking at this case, what do you think is going to happen? Is this the end for the Metaburkin? So I do think it's the end for the Metaburkin. I think that Hermes is going to win. And I'm actually not that happy about it. I'm not going to lie. Yes, I do agree that Rothschild is in the wrong in terms of copying the IP from the Birkin bag itself, from the Birkin name. But in a sense, it's not going to set a great precedent for future NFT collections down the line. I think that people are going to be a lot more wary about how they use IP from whether it be fashion brands, whether it be other pieces of art. I am worried about what it means for creator freedom. I would totally agree with that. I think we need to stick with the artists here. And I think, you know, over time, we've developed this kind of sample culture where artists kind of appropriate bits and pieces from wherever they find it, including the commercial world and make great art from it. And I think we should support that. And, uh, you know, if some rich old company gets on its high horse about its Birkin, then I don't really care. All right. So I guess I can't get an NFT Birkin anymore, but I will try my best one day to get a Birkin bag. That was Carpe Consensus. I'm Cam Thompson. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Danny. Thank you. Thanks, Cam. Can you get me a Birkin bag too? Of course, yeah. Awesome. Can we get matching ones? Let's just go to the Hermes store. When we're in Austin, let's go to the Hermes store. Between recordings of Carpe, when we're down there, let's go buy some things and try to get ourselves on that list.
One way to help us fundraise, please leave us a five stars, help other people find the show. That's the only way that we can get to the top of the ratings. Thanks so much. Tune in next week. See y'all later. Coindesk presents Crypto Crooks, Season 1, BitConnect. $2.4 billion, thousands of victims, mysterious deaths, untold misery worldwide. Once you start digging, you never know where it might lead. Consensus is a Coindesk production, executive produced by Jared Schwartz, and produced and edited by Eleanor Paul. Have any questions or comments? Email us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Carpe Consensus. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. <laughs>